0: All right, we are, uh, we are now in the, on the church calendar, we are in the post-Easter world and we are uh, beginning this week in John chapter 20 verses 19 through 31. And I believe some of these passages we'll find will pop up again later on uh, in regards to kind of the, the little Pentecost that happens here. But uh, tonight we're kind of concentrating on the story of Thomas. So I'm gonna read that passage again and then we'll uh, get into this story and uh, what I think is and is not happening. Here. It says this, John chapter 20, verses 19 uh, through 29. It says, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nail in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his sides, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house. and Thomas the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have come to believe. Tonight we're talking about Thomas, known by most people as Doubting Thomas. It's a rotten nickname. Have you ever had a nickname you didn't want? I think most nicknames that stick are names that you didn't want in the first place. If you go seeking a nickname, they don't usually work. In fact, at one point, my own wife Sarah had decided she'd wanted a nickname when we lived in Athens, and my friends and I tried to come up with them, and, and uh, they decided her nickname was Nug Nug, apropos of nothing. It means nothing whatsoever, but we tried to use it for a while to make it stick, and it just didn't. And in fact, resulted in a couple of embarrassing uh, mispronunciations. Uh, Melanie can tell you about that later on. Uh, but I always wanted a cool nickname too, and it never happened. I used to go and play uh, basketball uh, in the, the city courts right near my place in Atlanta when I was in seminary there. And everybody gave each other cool nicknames on the court. Uh, and all I was ever called was whatever the goofiest European player was in the NBA at that time, I got that name. No one, I never took the ball down the court and had someone, here comes Air Jordan or something. It was always, here comes Vladdy or something like that. It just They weren't flattering names. I've never got a cool nickname. And poor Thomas, right, saddled for all of church history with one of the worst nicknames we have handed out. And an additional insult is, as you read this, and I hadn't thought about this before this week, additional insult is he already had a perfectly good nickname. It says they called him the Twin. Now, granted, the Twin is not the coolest moniker in history, right? If this were professional wrestling, you certainly wouldn't expect the uh, intergalactic belt to be raised by Thomas the Twin. his intergalactic belt? But you know what I mean, that sounds kind of broad, International. World Championship, whatever the belt would be in professional wrestling, Thomas the Twin is probably part of a tag team that gets beat a lot by people you know, right? It doesn't instill a sense of fear in the opponent. Now, Peter got called The Rock, and that is a proven winner's name in professional wrestling. That's a name you can hold on to, right? But even though it wasn't a cool name, it doesn't mean Thomas wasn't entitled to keep his pre-existing nickname. But now we have Doubting Thomas, a name that only Judas the betrayer would be jealous of it's unfair right after all peter never had to exchange the rock every time he did something notable or something he shouldn't have done right he's not known as drowning peter or slashing peter or even peter the denier and just last week we read a story that indicated every single of the disciples doubted the testimony of the women who first witnessed the resurrection and none of them came away with a nickname But doubting Thomas has stuck, right? I mean, it rolls off the tongue. And it has also given birth to many a guilt-ridden sermon which warns us about the dangers of being like poor, unfaithful, doubting Thomas. You've probably heard one of those sermons. This is not one of those sermons. In fact, I would argue that Thomas is not even the least faithful person in this particular scene. Think about this scene for a moment. Here are the disciples locked in a room, scared for their lives after Jesus has been crucified. Look at them all in there. Why don't they get nicknames? Why not shivering Matthew and quivering John and knock kneed Bartholomew? Doesn't roll off the tongue, but you know, why not? And then suddenly Jesus appears among them mystically and he says, Peace be with you. And they don't even say, and also with you, like they should. And they're they're standing there and they don't give anything back to Jesus, but Jesus gives them so much. In just a couple of verses, these disciples receive a mission, a calling from the resurrected Lord. Christ imparts upon them his death-proof spirit in order to act as Christ's body in this world, right? As I have been sent, so I send you. They are sent out, They are told that people in this world will experience God's forgiveness and love and grace to the extent that it is offered by them. It's a big calling, a big mission. These disciples are empowered to be on the vanguard of an entirely new reality, the first fruits of a new world. They got firsthand confirmation of an actual resurrection, life after death. And they've been imbued with the very spirit of the creator of the cosmos. They have been empowered to help and to heal their brothers and sisters. Those disciples who have been equipped and have been sent tell the story to Thomas, poor Thomas, who had not locked himself in a room with them that day and therefore missed every bit of that miracle. I mean, can he really be blamed for wanting what every other disciple received? Is it unreasonable for you to ask God for what was so freely and widely dispersed to everyone else? Who here wouldn't have done the same? But beyond even a sense of fairness, can you blame Thomas for doubting this fantastic story a little bit? Now, I know if you grew up in church or grew up in like my church tradition, Doubt is a word that has scared you and has scared the faithful for a very long time. Many of us grew up in systems of faith that required you to present a doubtless certainty. We know it. We know what we know what we know. This doubtless certainty, as if such a thing exists, right? What it mostly meant for us, how that played out in my church and in my personal life, was I was just dishonest about the doubts I had. I just pretended like they weren't there and just dwelt on them on my own. And it turned out, I found out later on, having conversations with people, that everyone else was doing the same thing. And then we would just not talk about, and we would ignore the countless places in Scripture where the heroes of the faith doubt, and they wrestle, and they struggle, and they question. Fast forward to today, to be perfectly honest with you, truth be told, uh, I don't really trust anyone that doesn't doubt at least a little bit. So even if Thomas was doubting God in this story, I don't think that should be a scarlet letter for him to wear for all of time. Thomas is still the twin to me. I want to win them back that name. I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that a good disciple is sometimes uncertain, maybe even often. But I don't even think that's what's going on here. I'm not sure that Thomas is doubting God. I think that Thomas is doubting the disciples. And I'd argue they earned it. Again, consider for a moment the canyon of space between the story they are telling to Thomas and the reality that they are living. They essentially tell Thomas, Death is dead. God incarnate gave us his spirit and then empowered us to go and forgive all those who need it. We have seen resurrection and have been empowered to do something monumentally important in this world. What a life-altering sequence of events that we have and you missed. And they tell this to Thomas as they sit in the same room behind the same closed doors a week later. A week later, they haven't moved. Very literally, you could say that their, encounter, their first encounter with the risen Christ has not moved them in any measurable way. Still in the same place, doing the same thing, just telling a better story, a story that should have changed it all. Of course, Thomas doesn't believe them. Why would you believe them in that situation? What Thomas knows, what the disciples maybe don't, is that the story you tell will never be louder than the story you are living. The story you tell will never be louder than the story you are living. And while we often, as church folks, as faithful people, quote-unquote, like to condemn and judge those outside of our closed doors for their lack of faith in the risen Savior we believe in, I think we very often fail to realize that the ones that they rightfully doubt are us. Because we are all guilty of it. We sing songs about God's love and quietly whisper behind the backs of those we don't like. Right? We uplift theology of peace and we cheer at our enemy's demise. We applaud generosity while keeping a tight fist on the things that we should be willing to give away. We pray for God's kingdom to come while fighting about the world's politics the same as everyone else. The story we tell will never be louder than the story we are living. We talk about resurrection. Resurrection from the same old locked rooms from which we should have been sent out into the world right the problem is not thomas's doubt the problem is the consistency of the disciples witness the problem is the stories we live are louder than the stories we preach let's confess it let's own it for what it is and consequently let's thank god for god's grace cuz this will always be our struggle After all, God has chosen these jars of clay as the carriers of the resurrection story. These unlikely people, we, the church, are the holders of a story that is by definition better than the one we can actually live. There are no perfect witnesses to be found. None of us living up to the full ideals of the creeds and prayers and hymns and songs we sing But thankfully, what we see in this story is that even though that is true of us, thankfully, Jesus will show up in the room yet again and continue to offer his broken body over and over. And then he will say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. In other words... Blessed are those who have found their way past my disciples' inconsistencies, their mistakes, and their hypocrisies. Blessed are those who find my treasure even though it is often buried deep in their fields. Blessed are those who believe with us, sometimes in spite of us. Because we are the only body of Christ this world gets to see. We are God's only plan for delivering the fantastic news of resurrection. We're it. The fantastic news of resurrection, the story we are called to tell, the one where even when we stay locked away in the rooms we should have left long ago, somehow Jesus still shows up, shares his scars, and sends us in the world to do the same. Let's pray.